welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. Usually we do interviews with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR, but this week it's a bit different. In fact, today's interviewee, Professor Kai Schiller, was supposed to be giving his paper right now. However, due to continuing strike action by the UCU regarding the undermining of lecturers' working conditions here in the UK, We've postponed the seminar to 2020, and instead I have the opportunity to talk to Kai more extensively about his latest research and give listeners a sneak peek of his work on Alex Nathan. Hi, Kai. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Kai Schiller is a cultural historian of 20th century Germany. His book, The 1972 Munich Olympics and the Making of Modern Germany, won both the North American Society for Sport History Book Award and the Aberdare History Prize from the British Society of Sports History for Best Sports History Book published in 2010. He is also Editor-in-Chief of Sporting History, the BSSH's journal, so a very important man within our discipline, wields great power, I'm sure everyone would agree. <laughs> nice joke. <laughs> During 2019 to 2020, he will be mainly working on a biography of Alex Nathan, who we'll be talking about very shortly. So Kai, tell us about Alex Nathan. When did he first come onto your radar? Alex Nathan actually came onto my radar when um, I worked with Chris Young on this book on the 1972 Munich Olympic Games because Alex Nathan was a journalist who was invited by Munich City Hall um, for a three-day visit, all expenses paid, theatre tickets, opera tickets, uh, um, a reception with the Lord Mayor of Munich um, with the intention that he as a British writer of somebody was living in Britain would actually write positive things about Munich applying for the for the games and um, then I saw um, that he was writing in German I saw the name Nathan which suggested that he was Jewish um, and that he was living in the Midlands in Worcester he was writing from Worcester of all places yeah. um, I thought well this is probably a German Jewish refugee um, yeah. but at the time I didn't have any time to focus on him uh, any further. I just found it remarkable then that the, the Munich organizers were uh, happy to, uh, you know, basically contravene IOC regulations <laughs> by trying to influence the international sports press in, in that way. They wouldn't uh, do that, would they? they well, <laughs> I was, I was, that was kind of proof that they yeah. would do that. And <laughs> even people in Munich would do that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so, uh, but then um, I, I had the opportunity to do some research, further research and then, you know, then I thought, well, I could actually look at Nathan a bit more closely and then, so th th that's how the project came about. Because um, Hitler's rise to power actually prompted Nathan to, to become a refugee in Britain, didn't it? Um, Indeed, yeah, he left Germany in 1933. He was a, a relatively prominent sports journalist in the, 20, in, the, in the early 1930s who was working for left-wing papers predominantly and he, um, I think he was afraid that when Hitler took power um, that the Nazis would come after him so he very quickly left um, after the Reichstag fire, left for first Switzerland and then Britain. Yeah. But he was also an athlete, so he was a sports journalist but also an athlete during yeah. the 20s, 30s? Yeah, he had, he had the kind of I wouldn't say typical career, but a career that many former athletes embarked upon. So first he was an athlete, he was actually a, a world-class, well, an elite 100-meter runner, world-class, maybe it's a bit exaggerated, because he never made it to the Olympics, neither in 1928 nor in 1932. Um, but he was a very good there and thereabouts yeah. um, 
quality. Um, Better than a club runner, not quite. Absolutely, uh, yes, um, not quite Olympic fast. Well, actually, not even making it to the Olympics, because he was best in um, uh, running relay, uh, third position in the relay. Um, for and the German national team. No, not even for the German <laughs> national team, but for uh, his club team, SC Charlottenburg, which was a very famous athletics uh, club in the, in the 1920s. So it's a Berlin club, Charlottenburg's in Berlin. Yeah, Berlin, Charlottenburg, yeah. Um, famous club in Berlin. Um, and uh, he actually equaled the world record with his club squad in 1929. That's his main feat uh, when he ran with others 40.8. Yeah, but uh, he kind of peaked a year too late in order to make it to the 1928 Olympics. And then 1932, he's actually already finished his career as, a, as an athlete. He, um, yeah, and then he had become a sports journalist. And was he working as a journalist while he was competing? Or was this something that he did afterwards? Because I'm really interested in these mm. kind of sportsman journalists that are around in yeah. the 20s and 30s. Yeah. He, was, he was already writing for the club magazine. Mm. Um, um, uh, the Schwarze, Co uh, Schwarze Zee, um, the Black Sea, um, which is, if you know athletics, if you watch international meetings, you can still see Charlottenburg, the sea, um, the Black Sea is the sort of club, oh, okay. um, <laughs> club emblem. Yeah. And, he, and the, the Black Sea was also the name of the title of the club magazine. So I think yeah. he, he, took his, he did his first steps in, in, in journalism for that, um, for that club magazine from 1927 onwards. Um, but I think uh, uh, he became, only became a real journalist in 1931, 1932. So, so that, that's where he started to make money yeah, yeah. of being a, being a journalist. A journalist on the political left, though, you were saying? He was, he was working for left-wing papers, yeah. um, and, and uh, predominantly for one left-wing paper, which is called Die Welt am Montag, The World on Monday, which was a weekly paper owned by the German Trade Union Congress, for which he, for which he wrote, um, for which he was, he was responsible for the sports page. Yeah. For that, for that paper. Yeah. And um, he used it also to make points about politics and the politics of sport. But was he a joiner? Because I got the impression from the notes that you showed me for your paper that he yeah. was kind of not an e not an easy character to yeah. kind of fit into a movement. Let's say. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the the point the point to be made is perhaps that he didn't make it to the Olympics not only because he didn't quite make it didn't quite hack it in terms of you know he was didn't quite cut the mustard yeah. in terms of his speed but also because he was a very outspoken very critical of the German sports establishment which was traditionally very very nationalist so there was a close connection between the military and civilian sports clubs and um, uh, many parties but also um, many uh, belligerent factions of those parties such as for example um, uh, Rot Front Kämpferbund, the uh, Red Front uh, fighters uh, the com of the Communist Party or the uh, Reichsbanner um, of the Social Democrats, um, but also the, 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 the National Socialist Party had a very mm. close connection with sports clubs. So, for example, the SR, you know, the Stormtroopers, yeah. were originally founded as a uh, gymnastics and sports <laughs> um, uh, uh, wing of the party. Right, so they yeah? were just guys hanging out doing gymnastics. <laughs> well, they pretended to be, and they yeah. were very, very um, uh, willing to, as I said, to work with the, um, with the army, yeah? Yeah. Um, uh, to potentially revise the Versailles Treaty and to be ready to do that by military means. And 
um, much, many, many members of the German, responsible members of the German sports establishment came from a generation before Nathan. Nathan belonged to the war youth generation. He was born in 1905. So experienced war and uh, the collapse of Willemar in Germany. Um, uh, but he wasn't really suffering from the war. He felt he, he suffered from the fallout of the war. Yeah. Whereas the previous generation um, were front soldiers, the so-called front generation. And the German sports establishment, they were all part of that front generation who had fought at the front and, and very much believed that the German army had been stabbed in the back and had been undefeated in the field. And the Versailles was a shame that had to be done away with. This and is the myth of the Nazi regime, isn't it? Well, it's the myth of right-wing Germans um, um, throughout the Weimar Republic, not just the Nazi regime. Um, uh, uh, but um, uh, the Nazis obviously offered the revision of the Versailles Treaty, and that was one of the one of Hitler's sort of big selling cards, selling selling cards um, uh, to 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 achieve power. And that's also why, until war broke out, uh, every step he took, like the remilitarization of the Rhineland, um, uh, etc., etc., the the annexation of Austria, all these things contravened the um, Versailles Treaty. Um, and they didn't, they didn't result in war, um, but uh, they were very much welcomed by the majority of the German population. Yeah. And then, of course, when Hitler comes to power and the Nazis take over the structures of sport in, in Germany, Nathan comes to Britain. How, how easy was it for him to integrate into British society? He, ha he had family connections to Britain. So yeah. this, he comes from, a, from his, on his mother's side, he comes from a dynasty of corn traders. Um, Flechtheim, which were in Münster in Westphalia, a famous um, Jewish corn trading family from the 18th century uh, onwards, which had branches. The family was extending from Ukraine yeah. to Britain, so and they were covering. They, 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 were, they were not a monopoly, but they were very important players in the in the corn trade, which then also meant that they had that Nathan had relatives in London. Yeah. And um, which made it relatively easy for him to um, to move to London because he had a cousin here, um, uh, a sister of her of his mother, um, lived in London, was married to a to a to a, to a merchant uh, here in in, in, Lo in London. And we're actually speaking. Um, we're in London at the moment at the British yeah. Library, yeah. Um, so that's why I say here in London. Yeah. And. Um, and uh, and um, yeah, that made it relatively easy. He had a sort of first point of call when, when he came here. But I think that you talk about in your paper how when war actually broke out, then life became a bit more difficult. Yeah, li life became yeah. well. At first, you know, at first he he um, he was uh, involved in the uh, anti-Nazi resistance. I, he, he worked for Claude Coburn in 1933, 34 for his mimeograph paper the week, which I've just had a chance to see copies of here in the British Library. It's very interesting. And um, by often traveling to Germany on a, on a, on a, on a fake passport, um, uh, getting, trying to get sort of unfalsified information or uh, information which had not been blemished by propaganda out of Germany and publishing it here in that, in that news, in that sort of weekly Mimeograph paper, which was by subscription, which the entire political elite in Britain subscribed to, mm. um, and uh, uh, and he helped in sort of working against the kind of sort of appeasement attitude that much of Britain had at the time. But in 1934, when um, 
when when those who actually resisted Nasser, there was a group of resistors in the Reich's vice chancellor, <laughs> Franz von Papen, and um, he um, when that he he he, he um, that that kind of resistance was crushed in the night of the long knives. Yeah. And, and uh, and and after that, um, he just he just got away. He happened to be in Berlin at the time. He just got away, I think, by sheer luck. When he moved back to Britain, he worked as a coach and as a, a school teacher, um, and he traveled the country showing a, a, a film of the 1936 Olympics, not Riefenstahl's <laughs> film, but some yeah. some private film, uh, some amateur film. He also um, uh, uh, he also was asked to do an assessment of Scottish um, of fitness of Scottish youth for the national health campaigns, national fitness campaigns, that's what they're called. And, um, uh, but then in 1939, when war broke out, he was, uh, he was interned. Yeah, um, like a lot of former German Jews. Yes, like a lot of former Jews, or like a lot of German citizens. Yeah. yeah? Yes. As, uh, under the um, uh, Defense of the Realm Act, were, he was interned sure. as an enemy alien. Uh, unfortunately, he was interned for much longer than most others because he happened to be gay. Yeah, and there's yeah, uh, ex 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 so explicit explicit up. evidence yeah. that he was locked up, mainly for four years, uh, among others, uh, sent to Canada um, uh, on a ship um, which was very dangerous because of German U-boats. Um, uh, four ships went abroad. One of them actually was sunk, uh, and a relative of, of Nathan's died in that as well. Um, so uh, he was sent to Canada, and he was he was actually locked up because. Um, they wanted to deny him the opportunities for perversion. That's a, 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 a direct quote from yeah. the MI5 file. Yeah. So the security service uh, service had an eye on him the, the moment he came to Britain, also because he worked for a known communist, uh, Claude Corburn, also known as Francis Pitcairn. Um, the, they were watching him the whole time. And, uh, and um, uh, when he tried to become British, he tried to get British citizenship in 1938. Um, he had to uh, name uh, um, uh, people who wrote on his behalf, referees, and, yeah. uh, and they all wrote, uh, he was a fantastic coach, he was a fantastic teacher, but he has some major character flaw <laughs> or flaws, but nobody said what kind of character flaws, flaw that was, and, but MI5 looked right through it and uh, yeah, yeah. said, yes, well, this guy's gay, so let's lock him up. And right. they kept him locked up for four years. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by his uh, sporting novel, The Triumph of Inadequacy. Yeah, if, <laughs> unfortunately, that was that, that, that uh, in one of the German bombing raids, that was destroyed the, the on book. London. The book is destroyed. Oh, so, right. all we, so all we have is the title of the book, which is The Triumph of Inadequacy. Oh. Which, which was it me, in, in English language? No, 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 no. The right. Triumph okay. der Unzulänglichkeit would have been the German title. Yeah. Um, uh, he says it was destroyed. Uh, he writes that, found that in a letter. A reference to it. He actually submitted it to the. Um, he was encouraged by Thomas Mann, by the writer, yeah, yeah, to. Yeah. Um, he was also an exile. He uh, was also an exile. Yeah. He was actually very good friends with. I'm not sure whether he was good friends. He knew Klaus Mann, Klaus Mann, Thomas Mann's son, yeah. and his daughter Erika Mann, who were a fixture on the gay horizon. Yeah in Berlin in the 1920s. I think Stephen Spender. Um, Isherwood. Yeah, Isherwood. Um, now, I'm not sure whether he knew Isherwood or Spender. Yeah. 
but I'm sure he knew Klaus Mann and he knew a lot of the, that gay scene in yeah. Berlin in the 1920s. And, but Thomas, and he wrote to Thomas Mann, and Thomas Mann, Klaus Mann's father, and Thomas Mann encouraged him to write this novel, which, in my opinion, must have been a kind of ironic um, sports, uh, ironic novel. Or well, it's a great title, isn't it? It's not the usual sports novel title, is it? Indeed, uh, I think it makes yeah. fun of sort of the deadly serious athletes yeah. who um, exaggerate the importance of sport. That's my hunch. Now I cannot prove this because I, I haven't, I don't have the novel. But, but my my hunch would be that this is very ironic about about sports. And he submitted yeah. it, he submitted it to the arts competition of the for the 1932 Olympics in Los Angeles. Yeah. There was still an arts competition then, and he actually um, so he had to submit it via the German Olympic Committee, and they sent it back because it wasn't serious. Yeah. and heroic enough. Yeah, it didn't fit with their conception. It didn't of, fit with of, their conception yeah. of sports. So, um, so, I, so I assume it must have been quite ironic, sarcastic yeah. about, about sports. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to come on to, uh, talking about him, uh, is also his attitude to, to sport and mm -hmm. his kind of, his uh, idea of what sport should be mm -hmm. was quite intensely individualistic, I think. Um, yeah, I think but, that's, that's yeah. a fair point. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that he was, uh, consistent and that his attitude didn't change over time so I'm sure that when he was there and thereabouts he trained pretty hard there are texts about when he ran in the squad of SC Charlottenburg that he was afraid that they might lose because um, because he would be the weakest runner so he was, he was very very serious about this um, so and there's also a text where he talks about records as being something that is normal in high performance sport. There was a big discussion about records in, in Germany in the 1920s, whether they do not distort what sport is really well, about. It goes back to that amateur idea, doesn't it? The, you know, it's like yeah, there was a big discussion about yeah. professionalism as well. Yeah. Um, but then there comes a kind of point where you can see that Nathan actually sees sport mainly um, as a kind of way to recover from the to from everyday toils from work in industrial society um, and where he sees it as a way to um, expand um, uh, individual freedom to experience what uh, the uh, Hungarian uh, uh, psychologist Sixten uh, Micheli has called flow to have kind of flow experiences yeah. Yeah. so sport as therapy almost sports as therapy as a kind of way of feeling at one with the body, experiencing freedom, experiencing nature. Lots of ideas that also have a kind of root in the um, uh, uh, youth movement of the uh, turn of the century, life reform movement of the turn of the century. So there's a kind of romantic vision of sports, which in some ways you might even argue is quite conservative and is not so far away from what some of those more really right-wing conservatives thought about, thought about sport. Some of that thinking informs the Nazi agenda, doesn't it? Indeed, it yeah. does. So it's very difficult to, um, to, to call him uh, a, a pure modernist, uh, forward-looking, um, uh, in tune with uh, professionalization, in tune with the kind of political exploitation. He's, he resisted He resisted much of that. So in some ways he's kind of also there's a kind of romanticism of his, of his, of his conception of sport. Yeah. 
So yours is the second paper that we've had uh, this year, or we're mm -hmm. yet to have your paper yeah. but, yes. uh, submitted, that was about interwar Germany. And yes. uh, podcast listeners might have heard uh, John Hughes uh, talking to me about mm. Walter Neusel. Yes. Um, is this a trend? Is there a, is there a <laughs> growing interest in German sport between the wars, or is this just a coincidence? I, I think it's it's probably it's probably a coincidence. <laughs> um, it could become a trend if you. It could become a trend if, if John and students. I will <laughs> sort of continue to write on this, yeah. and others might pick up on this. Um, there's been a kind of obsession with the 1936 Olympic Games. That's yeah, that's kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. you know the so-called Nazi Games. And there's and been enough on that. In my there's opinion. been enough on that. <laughs> there's been enough. Of, perhaps maybe some new stuff might come out um, yeah. that might change our our, our, our opinions of, of this. But uh, obviously, I don't know. But the period before is, is not is not looked at very much. Yeah. And the period before the Weimar Republic is, is really when sports became a kind of had its breakthrough into German mass culture both as a kind of uh, a way a kind of in terms of consumption people sort of started consuming sports in stadia that were freshly built uh, they were newly built um, yeah. or uh, on the radio um, increasingly um, uh, as well as um, there's a kind of sports craze um, uh, the membership in sports um, clubs and associations um, skyrocketed in the Weimar Republic from the 1920s onwards, kind of replaced the kind of obsession with World War I. Yeah. Um, that was replaced with an obsession with... with uh, there was a kind of a thing Europe-wide sport. about sport being associated with the renewal of the nation, wasn't there? Or the renewal uh, of the race, as they would have put it in those days. Yes, there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of uh, renewal, um, uh, there's a kind of belief in hygiene yeah, yeah. Uh, as a kind of necessity um, particularly given the losses in World War suffered in World War One so there's it's so so it's not just in Germany it's not just the military that is obsessed with sports it's also the civilian authorities yeah. which are obsessed with um, sort of the um, um, people's health yeah, and improving people's health and it's obviously also connected to uh, an uh, increasingly industrial society, yeah, which had its has it had its breakthrough uh, in the in the in the Weimar Republic as well, um, and um, so 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 the impulse has come from both the kind of sort of loss of the war as well as how the civilian uh, government wants to um, regenerate. Yeah? Mm. Uh, it comes from the welfare state. You know, the Weimar Republic is the first experiment in the welfare state on German soil. So you have that um, belief in um, uh, regeneration, um, uh, lots of sort of ideas connected to the work space, to free space, free time, leisure time, how to use it in a sort of uh, productive, positive fashion. All these ideas inform that kind of belief in sport as a positive way forward then. I've been reading parts of your book that you wrote with Christopher Young about the, uh, the Munich Olympics of uh, 72 and in the introduction you make the point that the kind of the events of the, um, you know, the terrorist incident at the end mm. of those games really dominate thinking not just in the academy mm. but also in popular culture around what happened. Um, and obviously you don't ignore that incident in the book, but you're very keen to put the Munich Games back into the context of uh, post-war German history. And that, that I found really, really refreshing. And I thought, yeah, there's a reason why this book has won awards on both sides of the Atlantic. But um, can you talk us through the political context for those games, for those people who aren't specialists? Okay. Um, 
So I think because there's a triple thing going on, isn't there? There's Germany, there's Bavaria, and then there's Munich, oh right, so okay, right. So so <laughs> there, there, there are these different levels of um, agencies uh, of the state um, of Bavaria, the federal government, and the city of Munich being involved in this, um, which was necessary in order to finance games like this. You needed to have all three on board, otherwise this would, this, would, this would not have been possible. But I think I would have probably t started talking about it slightly differently. I would have said, okay. um, uh, I would have, because I was talking about the front generation, I was talking about the um, war youth generation, and now I talk about the so-called skeptical generation. Okay. These are um, uh, young men, uh, it's actually the generation after Nathan, young men who reach adulthood during the Nazi period and uh, experienced the worst of Nazism, who are not responsible for the Nazis being in power, but they're often usually young soldiers being drafted in and uh, see 1945 as a kind of uh, total devastation, total collapse of Germany and of everything that, everything positive that Germany stood for. And they reconstruct Germany after the war. And it's, the games are kind of, uh, legacy that that generation has left to us, or to, to, to my to subsequent generations, including my own. Um, uh, they were an elite project, pro project of that skeptical generation. Skeptical generation because it was skeptical about anything having to do with ideology. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, but very much informed by the kind of sort of post-war liberalization of Germany um, in the 60s. Um, not 68 so much, but that started earlier, in yeah. the early 1960s. Like I think everywhere in Europe, including in Britain and in France, kind of liberalization of culture. And uh, those games were meant to uh, represent that kind of sort of liberal, modern, democratic Germany that had been rebuilt after the war. And when Chris and I wrote that the book, we wanted to not so much focus on the terrorist incident, which of course uh, wasn't actually at the end, was somewhere in the middle because the so games famous, the famously end. went on, yeah. as yeah, Avery Brundage yeah. said, the games must go on. But to uh, write, so not so much to write the history from the end of the games as it should have been for many who yeah. were wit witnessing the, that event, but to, to write the history of those games from the beginning, to look at you know how were they planned, how were they devised who who was responsible for them and I said it was this elite it was mostly men it was a very male elite yeah, who um, who organized those games who designed those games who provided the architecture of those games um, and who um, you know created a kind of sort of created those games as a kind of symbol for a modern democratic Germany and they're in the very 1960s. much they're very much kind of in dialogue with the 36 games aren't they um, but trying <coughs> to control <coughs> that dialogue and, yes. and position themselves in a, in a much different place to yes I mean the the, the 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 absurdity of course one one of the absurd features of those uh, 72 games was that uh, the person who was most influential in awarding the games to yeah. Germany in 1972, Avery Brundage was already present in 1936 and had actually taken the wind out of the sails of the American boycott movement or the boycott movement of the um, American Jews against those 36 yeah. games yeah. because of the um, anti-Semitism, racial discrimination in Nazi Germany um, and loved the way 1936 had been organized and expected 
Germany to um, be at least as good in terms of organizing yeah, Olympic yeah. Games uh, as it would have been in 1936. So, um, so there's a kind of uh, connection there that the IOC as a very conservative old boys club um, loved third 1936 um, and, uh, and, and, and so the German organizers had to play to that. Yeah? yeah, we did extremely well in 1936. Now, again, <laughs> at the time, at the yeah. time, uh, again, it's perhaps important to recognize at the time, similar to the terrorism thing, um, at the time in the 60s, 36 was not seen as so negative as it is now seen. It has to do a lot with the work of historians um, and 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 their and their their sort of focus on on, on 36. Um, uh, and um, and so, and so so they anyway they they played they played to this. By the way, just to talk about this terrorism thing, um, in the aftermath, the first two three decades after the after the after seventy two, so very much until the un, until the nineteen nineties, the the terrorism incident wasn't so much on people's horizons. It had a lot to do, I think, with the end of the Cold War and the reemergence of Jewish memory. Mm. Um, that this became so much of an issue, and that those seventy two games were seen very much exclusively through the lens of that. I'll yeah. see nowadays through the lens of that terrorist yeah. attack. But um, I noticed that you dedicated the book to Hans Schiller, who I'm assuming is a relative of yours. Yes, my dad. Yeah. Uh, he, took me, he took me to the... So I should perhaps say I'm, I'm, I'm also... One of the reasons I wrote this book is because I'm from Munich. So, oh, right. I didn't um, know that. So, okay. um, so, uh, so my, that's my, um, it's my hometown. And yeah. so I have memories of a lot of, of a few key aspects of the games when I was a kid. Uh, I remember um, uh, Mark Spitz, uh, a Mark Spitz poster with his seven um, gold medals, um, famous American swimmer. Was he popular in Germany because oh, of I, I his remember, German origins I, as much as... Oh no, he's a Jew, he's a Jew, he's, 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 he's an American oh, Jew, he's an American so Jew, which again, in, very interesting, <laughs> very interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, nobody talked about this in Germany at right. the time. Nobody knew. It was not. Yeah. A, it was not a topic. Nobody discussed this. And um, Mark Spitz actually left the games immediately after the terrorist attack because he was afraid. He was, yeah. uh, that um, he was not safe as a Jew in Germany. Um, uh, but uh, I remember. Um, I don't know. Uh, we had a. We had a. We had a girl looking after me and myself, um, and she had a Mark Spitz poster in her, in her in her room. I remember that very well. I also remember. Um, the so-called Avenue of Games, which um, uh, where the bouncy castles were, which nowadays everybody knows what bouncy castles were. At the time, that was a real s spectacular. Nobody <laughs> had ever seen a bouncy castle. Um, and, and 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 as I said, my my dad took me to um, to see um, some of the athletics competitions in the in the in the stadium, and um, and I saw the uh, German. Uh, uh, Javelin thrower win the gold medal, yeah. Klaus Wolfermann. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's why the dedication is to my dad because that was a kind of important event for myself. Did, did those memories inform the, the the way that you wrote a book? I mean, obviously, it informed. I was the dedication, a kid. I'm, yeah, in, term, yeah. in terms of a dedication. So yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. One question, actually, which yes. I, um, is. How did you find the experience of collaborating on writing a book? I've spoken to a couple of other mm. people for yes. this series yes. about um, yes. writing books together. together. Yeah. It's a different process to doing something by yourself. So yeah. how did you negotiate that? Was it? Well, there was a lot yeah. of, sort of, we had a lot of arguments about <laughs> how, yeah. you know, how to weigh certain things. And uh, um, 
how so I think to academics it. quite like to be sort of yeah yeah there's a there's a sometimes. yeah no no it was uh, it was it was it wasn't um, it was it was I think a very fruitful process the end result sort of speaks for itself mm. but it wasn't very easy so yeah. there's a lot of arguments um, over this and uh, and um, I think we we kind of did decided both of us that that was good good yeah. enough so we only did one project together oh, okay. <laughs> it didn't work any together anymore but um, I think it, it, it got better because there was two of us involved so there was a lot more discussion than I think then if you write by yourself and you kind of perhaps you you, you must you, you cannot be very protective of your work you have yeah. to be able to willing to share it and willing to take the criticism I yeah. think that's really important myself you yeah, know, yeah. Is that yeah. before you even submit something to an editor you, you should you should get somebody to read it critically and yes. if you're doing a yes. joint book yeah, then yeah, yeah, no. you've got an editor right there exactly you? yeah exactly yeah. Yes. talking of editors and uh, journals you're the editor-in-chief for sport in history um, yes how, how did you get into that what was your path into becoming there was at one at some point there was a was an ad um, calling for someone who wanted to be an editor, an associate editor, and I put in an application. And the trustees of the society obviously thought it was a was a good idea that I would become associate editor. So I became associate editor. Did that for a couple of years, and then um, Dave Day, who used to be my who used to be editor and who was my my predecessor. Uh, maybe looked at the the other editors and thought that I would be best placed to take over from him and he asked me whether I'd be willing to do that and as I know that usually a term as editor-in-chief is only three years yeah. um, you've got <laughs> a life sentence uh, no 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 it's only three years so, <laughs> All right. so I hope not no I hope not um, yeah. no um, so I so I took over obviously you you have to learn how to do learn the ropes so yeah. you have to be an associate editor first and then um, I think one of the big problems the journal has is, um, is that it's never had a female editor. Yeah. So yeah, I, um, I, I, I should say that I very much hope that my successor yeah. that will have a female um, But I believe academic. that you have um, associate editors. We have, associate we, have, we, now have, we now have Sam Oldfield yeah. Yeah, as a female um, associate editor. So um, in time. Um, yeah she or somebody else who's, other, who's maybe experienced uh, who's, who's worked in a responsive position for another journal yeah, yeah. might take over for me I hope so okay. I'm going to wind up quite swiftly because we've got some jazz going on at the British okay. Library <laughs> um, is there anything in future issues you'd like to flag up I've just received my latest copy which was the second special issue on women's football yes uh, I think I think the great thing is we have two special issues now this year on, on women's football um, which um, were edited by Jean Williams and yeah. some of her colleagues and friends, and I think they're absolutely... They're really groundbreaking fantastic. issues, I think. They're fantastic, really yeah, fantastic work, yeah. indeed. Um, we'll have, um, next year, we'll have, uh, on the 10th anniversary of the first um, uh, issue on women's sport, um, on historians of women's sport, histories of women's sport, by Carol Osborne and Fiona Skillen. We have um, 10 years after another special issue to see, to look again at the state of yes. um, the history of um, history of women's sports. So that's that I'm looking very much forward to. And that's in, that's in 2020 as well. Great, well, I look forward to, uh, to reading that. And 
I don't think I'll try and compete with this guy any longer. I'll do the outro. I might do it at home. Well, thanks, Kai, for taking time to talk to me today. My pleasure. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the paper, whenever it may be in 2020. Okay. We need to try and sort that out at some point when the IHR get back to me. Next week will be the last podcast of 2019, and Connor will be talking to Ryan Murphy of the University of Texas in Austin about the rise of lifestyle sports in post-war America. So uh, if you want to learn about the history of Frisbee, then that's the podcast to listen to. Uh, for more information about the podcast, the seminar series at the AHR, or the BSSH's journal, Sport in History, do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, which is easily uh, located if you're used to jabbing at your phone. Or you can visit the IHR's revamped website at history.ac.uk. And that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Okay, thanks. <laughs>